Welcome to the Madison Story Slam podcast. I am the host, Adam Rosted. Welcome. Hey, this recording is of our December Story Slam. The theme was dangerous. We have got a lot of great stories and a lot of great storytellers. Uh, we had free cookies at this event. Hey, you should come because sometimes we do things like free cookies. We always do a uh, giveaway at the door. Our next Story Slam is January 16th. That is a Saturday at the Wilmar Center. Stories go from 7 to 10, but get there at 6 to get a spot and maybe sign up to tell a story. Uh, it'll be a great time. Thanks to Ale Asylum for sponsoring this past event and our upcoming event and really every event we do. Our first storyteller is Carson, so sit back, relax, and listen to Carson. Cool, thanks. So this is a story about how I learned to be afraid of loud noises that always should have scared me anyway. Um, so... I wasn't always afraid of loud noises that should have scared me anyway. Um, I come from a town where like, people just generally don't get beat up, and you're generally pretty safe. Um, I would walk on the sidewalk. or No, I, there aren't any sidewalks, so I would walk um, basically on the street, and cars would go like passing three inches to my left, and it would like the breeze would push me over a little bit, but I was fine. I never got run over. I didn't have any reason to feel um, afraid or that people would kill me because nobody would ever want to kill me. Um, I'm generally a pretty nice guy. I don't I don't make people mad very frequently, and so I had no reason to believe that when you hear gunshots in the distance or when you hear people screaming about something that they would ever do something to me and so it was always an academic fear uh, in the same way that you know you're supposed to be afraid of the bad guy in scary movies from the 50s but you're not actually afraid of it because it's not scary and so this is how I lived for a long time and I went to my to live in my dad's house for college, which was in a college town, and there were more loud noises, there were more frequent, there was more yelling. It was usually drunk people yelling and having a good time. Sometimes it wasn't really possible to tell if they were having a good time or not, but there were lots of noises. But I still never thought that somebody was going to personally fuck me up. And so generally, there would be scary things happening, and I just didn't care. Um... And at this, this whole time, I was going to a school. I told you I was in college. Spoiler alert. Um, and I was studying stuff that I thought was really hard, and so I was constantly stressed out and, from my opinion, constantly working. And so I would walk um, to school about a mile and then walk back from school because my dad lived in the same town. It was cheaper to live with my dad, and it was a good time. He was my family. Um, but also, my dad had lots of tenants in the house. And so, again, maybe I should have been scared because there were lots of people in the house that I hadn't met and didn't have any reason to trust. Um, In general, they were fine. They were weird, but they were fine. There was one guy who never talked. Um, Oh, he talked a little bit, but he didn't really have any friends. One time, he walked into my room when I really would have preferred him to not be walking into my room, and I didn't really have all of my pants on, and I said, go away, but he was fine. He was fine. It was okay. He wasn't scary. And there was another guy who had been a car salesman at some point and was in some kind of business now. Occasionally he left the house in a suit. And he was, like, annoying but well-meaning. And he was fine. He wasn't scary. And then this person moved in, and his name was Jeremy. And um, Jeremy was different. Everyone was different, but he was especially different. He was large. He was really huge. Sometimes people who go to the gym and CrossFit or whatever will tell you that, like, um, you know, it's not really about looking like you have huge muscles. It's really about core strength and, like, being able to pick up a train and everything. And this guy could definitely pick up a train. He was, he was just huge. I'm a small person. He, I could probably fit inside him, like, four times over. He was just gigantic. And to give you an example, uh, I don't really know what else he did for a job, but he would work for my dad. My dad... Uh, is a landscaper and would play around in the backyard sometimes. And one time, just a big tree fell down on the deck, and it was unclear how we were ever going to get rid of it. And Jeremy just, like, walked up and basically picked up the whole tree, like, in one arm and just threw it over the side of a cliff. Like, this guy was just, just, just a machine. He was a monster. And he was super cool. He was, he did not walk in on me while I was masturbating. He did not try to tell me about business knowledge. He was just cool. Uh... We came from different backgrounds. Um, He was white, but he spoke as if he had 
um, been raised in the city and like um, maybe um, but he taught me a lot about life and we just talked a lot about personal stuff and he was the only person who I um, who had lived there who I felt comfortable actually having conversation with and he was cool and sometimes I heard that he and my dad would get into arguments but there was never really a problem um, he uh, as far as I could tell like he, he never brought it home back into the house and so one day I came home from school it was real late as it always was um, I just wanted to go to sleep I had been doing lots of homework I had a test the next day and I was in my bed downstairs trying to sleep um, my bed was in the basement, which was great and um, generally kept it about the temperature of this room right now. So I was probably in a coat while I was in my bed under covers and I was trying to sleep, but it was fine because I was in the basement. And Jeremy's room was on the third floor of the building. So that meant that there were two floors in between us. And so it came as a really big surprise to me when I was trying to sleep and I heard the following. Where's my fucking money? Okay. That was a really big surprise to me because people didn't usually yell at 2 o'clock in the morning. And again, there were two floors that were separating us. And so um, that was a big problem. So I went upstairs and I got my dad and I said, hey, I think Jeremy is yelling about something. And so we heard again. Where's my fucking money? Okay. Um, I didn't know where his money was. <laughs> uh, and generally, when people ask you questions in that tone of voice, you don't really want to answer your qu their question. You just want to leave. But uh, So I was pretty afraid. And, uh, and I was also afraid for my dad and for everybody else who was living in the house. Um, and so Jeremy came downstairs, and he was explaining to us that... Um, there was some amount of money. I think it was around $200. Let's say it was around $200. It was somewhere in his room, and then it was not there anymore. And who knows who could have taken it because there were many people living in the house. And I didn't know. My dad didn't know. And my dad is about the same size as me, so, you know, uh, two of me and two of my dad could have fit inside this guy's body, and he was staring down at us. And that's the point when I realized... It didn't matter that he had no reason to kill me. He could have anyway. Um, and my dad, too. I mean, again, same body stature as me, plus 50 years. Couldn't have done anything. And at that point, I realized I was completely powerless. My dad was powerless. And the other thing we could do is trust this person not to fuck our shit up. Um, and so I called the police, and uh, I didn't die, and my dad didn't die. But at that point, I realized, uh, when you hear loud noises in the house, maybe you should worry about them. That's it. Thanks, Carson. My favorite part of that story is when Carson was like, we came from pretty diverse backgrounds. He was a white guy. <laughs> and you're Haitian or... Uh, all right, next up we've got uh, Ken... So please put your hands together for Ken Fager. Hi there. Uh, my name is Ken. Um, theme tonight is dangerous. I thought I'd get up here and just ruin Star Wars for all of you. No, I'm not going to do that. Ooh. Let me tell you a story and get you on my side. How about... Um, I am an amateur photographer. Uh, that's one of my favorite hobbies. And one of the things that I like to focus on in my photography is abandoned buildings. There's a whole subgenre of this type of photography. It's called urban exploration. And what people like myself, or we call ourselves urbexers, we try to get into abandoned buildings and not get caught in the process because essentially what we're doing is trespassing. And there's elements of danger. Uh, if you've ever been in an abandoned building, there's asbestos, there's lead, exposed wires, homeless people. Sometimes you run into security guards who think they're police officers. 
Sometimes you have the police called on you and they draw their guns on you. But I'm not here to talk about those experiences. Um, I've seen some pretty amazing things going into abandoned buildings. I go to Gary, Indiana all the time. I've been to East St. Louis. I snuck into the Schlitz Brewery in Milwaukee before they tore it down. Um, I've been to Mike Tyson's mansion. Uh, I've seen some pretty great things in my explorations. Um, but there was one location in particular that, that really got to me. I mean, I can go around a building and I can tell you pretty quickly where its weak points are and how I'm going to get into it. But there was a hospital in Chicago that always stymied my efforts. And every time I'd go to Chicago, I'd stop by this hospital and take a walk around it and it was pretty well secure. The first two stories were boarded up really tight. The windows were closed. The doors were barred shut. Sometimes there'd be a security guard actually patrolling the perimeter, and I kind of had to let it be. Well, one evening, a friend of mine sends me a text message that says, guess what? I got into the hospital, and here's how you do it. Now, with abandoned buildings, this sort of information on how to get in undetected uh, has a shelf life. This intelligence will disappear, the security company will figure it out, and they'll close up the point of entry really quick. So the very next Saturday morning, I wake up at 2 in the morning instinctually. It just happens when I'm ready to do urbex. And I drive down to Chicago, and I get there before the sun comes up. And there's a massive blizzard going on right now. So nobody is around, which is great for me because the less people that are around in this busy city means the less likely I'm going to get seen. So I wait outside the hospital about 45 minutes and just kind of watch as people walk around this hospital just to make sure there's no security guard that will just suddenly magically show up. Well, when I was content that... I wouldn't be seen, I walked to the back of the hospital where there was an alleyway. Now, the point of entry is on the second story, and I can't exactly see it because the alleyway is so narrow. I kind of have to just trust the information that has been provided to me. So what I do is there's a fenced area that's slightly raised with a big water tower, and I climb up and over the fence, and I walk on over to the other side. When I walk over to the other side, I climb back up the chain link fence and I'm standing on it and there's an overhang over one of these doors. And I had much better upper body strength back then. Pull myself up to that overhang and I'm standing on this overhang now. From there, I can jump to another raised platform with a fence on it. So I jump onto it, pull myself up over the fence where there are these two live active power transformers that are buzzing like you wouldn't believe. So I take my camera gear, my bag off, I throw it in between the two power transformers, and I very carefully crab walk in between them, trying not to touch them. And when I get through, there it is. There's a service door wide open. Now, sometimes security companies will create what's called a honeypot. They'll have an entrance but they'll be rigged with motion detectors or an alarm or something like that. I've actually run into this. but my, So my paranoia is at an all-time high, but I'm carefully looking for any wires that are you know, magically strung up against the wall. I'm checking the corners for motion detectors. There's nothing like this. So I get inside, and I'm satisfied that, all right, I've done it. I'm going to start my exploration. So one of the things, if you're doing an urban exploration, and if you're a photographer, is you, you don't want to miss anything you want to cover all the ground that you can. And hosp this hospital is huge. It's three separate buildings that are all interconnected. So I go down to the very basement, and my plan is to start at the bottom and just kind of work my way up in a clockwise fashion to the very top of the hospital, which is about 10 or 11 stories tall. So not only am I going to be walking a long distance. I'm going in and out of every single room that this hospital has to check and see what's inside of it to take photos. Well, the exploration in the morning goes phenomenal. I'm seeing everything that you'd expect to see in a hospital. I'm seeing 
uh, an emergency room. I'm seeing a prenatal care unit, an intensive care unit, pediatrics. I'm finding electrocardiograms along the way, pictures of the hospital staff. I'm finding syringes and computers and a hyperbaric chamber. And this is some of the best stuff that I've ever seen in my explorations. It's, It's just leaving me breathless. So... The thing about abandoned buildings is that they're very cold. They tend to hold on to the cold from the, the harsh winters. So it's, there's a storm going on outside. It's like 10 to 20 degrees cooler in this hospital, so I am shivering the entire time. I can't take my fingers out to manipulate my camera for more than a few seconds without them going numb. And... I just ignore this, power through it, and come around lunchtime, my blood sugar just plummets really deep. Like, your average blood sugar, if you're a type 1 diabetic, should be between 80 and 150 or something like that. No, mine's 40. So I've come prepared, though. I eat my lunch. My blood sugar stabilizes. Things are okay. Well, that's great. I'm less than halfway through exploring this abandoned hospital. So... I've got to make some strategic decisions about if I want to see the rest of it. So I pick up the pace a little bit, and I start working my way through the floors a little bit faster, checking the rooms a little bit faster, again, seeing great things along the way. Come 2 o'clock, my blood sugar plummets again. Just goes, ooh, total nosedive. Just trying to stay warm is just burning through my glucose levels. So, you know, I still got a little bit of food with me. I eat that, and about a half hour goes by. My blood sugar drops even lower. It's not coming back up. So here I am in the middle of this abandoned hospital. My blood sugar is dropping. I'm at the risk of losing consciousness. And if you've ever had a low blood sugar, one of the things your body does is it goes into a panic mode. It's just like, stuff whatever carbs and sugar you can into your mouth. So I, I do... I stuff whatever food and candy I have left in my bag, and I've got to make now a strategic decision. It's going to be physically demanding to get out of this hospital unseen, but I'm sure there's some great stuff on the last floor, and I definitely don't want to miss that, so up, up by the roof. So I go up to the roof, and I want to see all that before the sun goes down. And I get up there, and I'm blown away by what I find. You know when you go to a hospital they keep, or a clinic, they keep records in those manila folders that are color-coded and they got big letters on them? There's a room, floor to ceiling, of these medical records. This hospital has been closed for over a decade. They never bothered to take these records out. So there are birth certificates, death certificates, videos of surgeries, social security numbers, addresses. My mind is blown, and I take some photos of this stuff, and it's just really compelling. This, These shots made the whole effort worthwhile. And as I'm looking at the pictures on my camera, I make my way to this small corridor with a door, and I swing the door open, and then there's a flash and a giant alarm that just bam, 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 bam. And what do I instinctually do? Turn around and just book it to the nearest stairwell that I can find. So I pick the stairwell that's central to all these buildings, and I just start running down it. And as I'm running down it, I realize I'm in the pitch black, save for my flashlight. There's running water over my head, and this whole building is frozen, so there's ice underneath my feet. And just as, you know, this is coming into my brain as I'm running down this stairwell, as the alarm is going, bam, 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 I slip, lose my flashlight, and catch myself as I'm going down on the railing, and I realize in that moment, if I knock myself out, I... I'm going to die. There'll be frostbite. I'll be unconscious. No one's going to come and find me. And if you're like me, a type 1 diabetic, you're not going to live for three days. You're going to live for minutes or maybe a couple hours at most. So I get my head about me. I pull my cell phone out of my pockets and use whatever light that gives off. And I calmly force myself to walk down that stairwell 
all the while the alarm is going, bam, 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 bam. I've got to get out of here. Time matters. The minutes count. I don't know who's going to show up once I get out to the outside. I get onto the second floor, and I've totally blanked on how to get out. I don't know where I've come in. Now, one of the things that you learn when you get into a giant abandoned building that doesn't really have any discernible pathway out is you pick an outside wall and just follow it. So I pick the outside wall, and I'm running frantically from room to room to room to room to room to room until I finally find the area that I come in. (sighs) Okay, it's not over yet. I've got to get out of here. So I sling my, I put my camera gear in my bag really quickly. I sling it on my back and I get out and there's those two power transformers and I'm crab walking between those power transformers, which are buzzing and are loud. And I realize my metal tripod at any point could probably connect these two and boom, I'd be fried. But you know, it's too late. I'm already squeezing through. I make it through. I jump on the fence and I take my camera bag and I chuck it down two stories into a snowbank and I get onto that overhang and I jump right off of it into another snowbank get over that fence grab the bag and my first instinct is to just get the fudge out of there as quick as possible but if you're running away from something where an alarm is going off that's going to be kind of obvious to whoever pulls up that hey this guy's probably guilty so I put my head down and I walk very calmly and very slowly down that alleyway for about four or five blocks. And I can still hear the alarm in that neighborhood. Bam, bam, bam. Take the long way around. I don't know at this point. My head is just going a mile a minute. Somehow like a horse, I find my way to my car, which is parked in the other direction. And I get in my car and I'm shivering violently like my whole body is shaking I, I don't know if it's a low blood sugar I don't know if it's because I'm cold and I don't know if it's because I'm nervous but it takes about a good 45 minutes to an hour for me to finally calm down and during that entire time I can hear it in the distance that alarm going off now you to think that after such a crazy adventure something so dangerous I would have learned my lesson I did not. I was back there two weeks later, and I led a group of photographers through that same hospital. We avoided the top floor, but thank you. Thank you, Ken. Uh, I'm curious as to what this means. Like a horse, I found my car. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what that means. Uh, so uh, our next storyteller is a guy named Tom, and he's wonderful. Uh, so please put your hands together for Tom Schmidt. Let's see, so the story, or the theme tonight is dangerous, and uh, and I've been around for a few years, so there have been a few dangerous things that have happened, and I've been uh, underwater in Class 5 rapids. Um, I've been uh, hit by a semi on the interstate and walked away from it. Um, anyway, tonight I'm not going to tell a story about dangerous. I'm going to tell a Christmas story, because guess what? Christmas is almost here. So, um, I've been uh, uh, very lucky. Uh, I've got a real nice family, and as a result, uh, you know, we, we've had nice Christmases. So, this story will be about my, at my grandmother and grandfather's house, uh, and the Christmas, one of the particular Christmases we had at their house. But typically, at their, houses, at their house, we would always have, certain things were always there all the time. The Christmas tree was always, every piece of tinsel on this Christmas tree was put on by hand, one at a time. And at the end of Christmas, every piece of tinsel was taken off one at a time and put on a card and stored for the following Christmas. And the lights on the tree were these round globes, maybe inch and a half in diameter, and the colors on them were... uh, 
unusual for today's colors. There was turquoise and salmon and coral and uh, a variety of colors. Underneath the Christmas tree was a little a German village, and the little houses were made out of cardboard, glued together and painted. All the little animals were hand-carved, all underneath the Christmas tree. Every year it was like this. And my grandpa and grandma were great, and my aunts and uncles were great, and my cousins were all there. And every year all the cousins would have a food item that was given to them. My older boy cousins were always got summer sausages, which I wanted really bad. Instead, I got olives, which was my thing for whatever reason. <laughs> so we live next door to my grandpa and grandma, and I was 12. And my grandfather had taken me out fishing uh, the year before, and I got my, caught my first walleye, which was a big deal. So I, Grandpa takes you out fishing. Well, that means, you know, that's a, like a part of becoming a man. You go out fishing with your grandpa, and you catch your fish. That's a big deal. And so I was sure, because my grandfather had given me a fishing pole that he had built, and I still have it today. It's really special. But... I didn't have my tackle box. I didn't have a reel. And so I figured when I went next door to, to look, because my grandpa and grandma put their gifts under the tree a week before. So you could walk over and you could shake things. And I shook that one, one box or wrapped up item. It was a tackle box. I'm absolutely certain that this is a tackle box. And I'm excited. The next box was a a box absolutely perfect for a fishing reel size. So I knew I got the two items that I needed really, really badly in my life at that time. So Christmas came and, you know, my uh, Tana Dora, my Aunt Dora, she got her soap every year like she did every year. My grandpa and grandma that from the kids, you know, they got uh, little items, uh, you know, whether it be a paintbrush or some peppermints or, you know, all this Nonsense that I'm sure that they realized every year they were going to get and they shoved in a closet somewhere or in a drawer. In any event, it was time for me to open my gifts. And I opened up the one gift and it was a tackle box. It was green. It had all nice cork linings in it so that the hooks wouldn't get damaged when they were in the, in the tackle box. And now it's time for my fishing reel. And I opened it up and it was a uh, pencil sharpener. Well, anyway, uh, because my grandpa and grandma were real special, I, I had to make sure that I did not show disappointment when I opened this thing up. And I, I, maybe I pulled it off, maybe I didn't, I don't know. But the pencil sharpener ended up being a great gift after all. I had it until I was in sophomore year in college. And when I moved out of an apartment, I forgot that it was on the closet door and the pencil sharpener was gone. But that's my Christmas story. Thanks, Tom. How many people are native to Madison? Like you always have lived here. Like six people, maybe. <laughs> in uh, in East Town Mall, there used to be a store called the Nature Store. Anybody? Yeah. Uh, it was it was right around the corner from the old ice cream parlor that was in East Town Mall. I'm learning all you guys now. Um, the nature store was awesome because you could go in and like play with stuffed animals for five minutes while your mom went into Claire's because it was like right next door to Claire's and Gloria Jean's Coffee. <clears throat> I don't think either of those stores are there anymore. <laughs> anyway, so the other great thing about uh, the nature store was they had rain sticks. Rain sticks were really cool because they made the sound of rain when it wasn't raining. I don't... <laughs> As an adult, it sounds so stupid. <laughs> but as a kid, it was like, yeah! It sounds like rain, Mom! I want one! And my mom, you know, very astutely, was always like, no. <laughs> you can play, it for, play with it for the five minutes that you're in the nature store once a week when we come to the mall. That makes us sound like douchebags. We didn't go to the mall once a week. That would be horrible. <laughs> but one year for Christmas, my grandmother did give me a rain stick. And I, I remember it was wrapped. 
And it was like kind of curved. And I was, I kept thinking, A, because it was probably like this long, this big, this tall, whatever. I remember thinking, A, that's a really long baseball bat. And B, it's really curved, so it's a really shitty baseball bat. <laughs> and then I opened it, and I was like, I can make rain sounds now! <laughs> but then you play with it for like five minutes, and you're like, okay. <laughs> and like, you never... It sat in the corner of my room for probably 15 years before we finally just were like, let's throw that away. So that's my Christmas story. Up next, we have Madeline. Madeline, are you in here? Come on up here, Madeline! Hello. This is my first time telling a story here, so thank you. Yeah, thank you. My story of danger happened at a debate tournament, which right off the bat tells you all you need to know about me. Um... This was a national tournament in Chicago, and it was Memorial Day weekend of my senior year of high school. So national tournament sounds really impressive. Really, we qualified through like a bunch of backroom deals with other schools. It was like the Tammany Hall of debate tournaments. (laughs) There's an old one for you. So it was me and then four other seniors who were all going on this trip. And we get into the hotel, which is right across the street from Grant Park in Chicago, which is a beautiful area, and we were really looking forward to at least getting to go there for a little bit. So when we get into the hotel, um, me and the only other girl on the trip got to have a room to ourselves. Our coach like dropped us off on our floor, and as we were walking into our room, we noticed somebody had left their room service sitting out, and there was a half-eaten lava cake. We weren't into that. But then there was also a, an unopened can of beer. And we, uh, we were like, yes! Um, so my roommate took that and she like hid it in our ice bucket. Um, so we do the first day of the tournament, the like preliminary rounds. And this was second semester, senior year. We were running dangerously low on fucks to give at this point. So... We didn't do that great. We knew that we were not going to make it to like the out rounds of the tournament. But at the tournament hotel, they had this party at the end of the night. So we were like walking past all these acne-faced kids that were like, we're going to get turned at the speech party. Um, and so after the first day, we went up to our room. Um, our coach, again, dropped us off at the door. He's like, you know, you guys can do whatever. Don't do anything too crazy. And my roommate's like, oh, yeah, we're probably going to go check out the party downstairs and wait for results to be posted. And my coach is like, yeah, great. Closes the door. She's like, we're not going to them. <laughs> Instead, I found out that my other teammates had bought a cigarillo. Um, <laughs> And I'm going to say, I'm going to quote here. She said, because he's a pussy. Um, (laughs) And we were going to sneak out of the hotel and go across the street to Grant Park and walk around with our can of beer and our cigarillos. And I was like, yes, this is my chance. This is my John Green novel, like, where... I'm going to have the time of my life. I'm going to do something amazing, and it's going to be a story for the ages. So I was like, yes, I have to go. So we left the hotel and walked across the street, and I was like, wait, why am I doing Why am I doing this? Because <laughs> like, I'd lied to teachers before, but more in the sense of, yes, English teacher, I did read Heart of Darkness, and not in the sense of, like, I may be putting your career in danger by sneaking out of this hotel. But we did it anyways. And... I was coming to the realization that I didn't super know these people. We'd been on the team together for a long time, but they weren't really my friends, except for one person who I was close to, and this was my friend Joe. And I'd asked Joe out earlier in the year, but it didn't really go so well. But we were okay. So we were walking around Grant Park. We had the cigarillo out. People were passing around the beer, and I was like, nah. (laughs) Uh... And then we got a phone call from our coach. And one of the guys picks it up. It's like, hey, Nick, what's up? You know we're not in the hotel. Okay. Um, And they were trying to prove to him that we weren't, like, out buying heroin on the streets of Chicago. So then they were like, no, no, you know who will convince you? Madeline. Madeline's going to do it. And I was like, don't you give that to me. Nick, hi. We, like, we didn't think it would be a bad idea. We didn't think it would be a big deal. And then my coach repeated those words back to me. You didn't think it would be a big deal. 
Yeah, it was pretty stupid. <laughs> so he eventually acquiesced and was like, okay, these kids are just across the street. It's going to be fine. Just be back to the hotel by midnight. Handed off the phone to them and was like, I hate you guys. I hate you so much. And we continued to walk around the park. The other four were talking amongst themselves, and I was just kind of there. We didn't really see anyone, and I started to get really concerned because I was in a strange city to me at the time in my pajamas, and I didn't feel like I quite belonged there at 10.30, 11 o'clock at night. Um, Eventually, I started talking to my friend, and I still kind of had a crush on this guy, so I was hoping that maybe something would happen. We were walking around the streets of Chicago. It was dark. It smelled amazing because this was late May, and the flowers were all blooming among us. And I was talking to him, hoping for some romance. But he kept talking to me about this girl he was texting, and I kind of gave up hope at that point. When we were walking through these bushes of these beautiful blooming flowers, I kept getting more and more terrified because I was like, man, they're going to tell this story about the five dumb teenagers who managed to be out in Grant Park on the night of the Great Debate Stabber. And we were going to be... (laughs) A cautionary tale for the ages. I did not get debate stabbed. (laughs) But eventually we did cross the street, probably almost getting hit by several cars in the experience, Uh, and I realized that I had gone through an experience that I didn't like, with people that I didn't really like, with a guy who didn't like me the way I wanted him to. And I started to consider that maybe I deserve a little bit better than that. Thank you. Thank you, Madeline. Uh, Madeline, what do you do? Yeah. Uh, You're a great storyteller. (laughs) Honestly, give her another round of applause because that was great. I have a very similar story about a guy I was really into. No. uh, (laughs) I have a very... It's not similar at all. But the fact that you were in a hotel with a bunch of people who weren't your friends reminded me of a story of me in a hotel with a bunch of people that weren't my friends. I'm a pastor's kid. I uh, grew up a pastor's kid. That's how you do it. And... uh, (laughs) uh, We used to go to like these youth conventions um, called Acquire the Fire. Anybody heard of Acquire the Fire? All right, one person, all right. It's like where you were supposed to acquire the fire of Jesus into your heart. And uh, I can make fun of Christians because I still am religious. I still am a Christian. I just say fucking shit. Uh, so um, I'm at Acquire the Fire, and I believe it's in uh, Minneapolis. And I'm there with a bunch of people from my church who, again, I'm the pastor's kid, I'm the youngest person in the youth group, so I am a loser. And I'm okay admitting that. Um, I don't know how this happened, but like usually at these things, when you're, you're at the hotel that the convention is at, so the hotel arranges it so that there's just this big block of rooms that are all religious people in the hotel rooms. Well, our hotel room was right next to... I don't know what they were. It might, may as well have been a Snoop Dogg video because, like, the smoke was just billowing out. And, like, <laughs> we could, like, and meanwhile, I am 12 years old, 12 or 13 years old. And uh, you could hear the music all night. It was, like, 3 a.m. when finally the music might have turned down, like, two notches. But we heard all this banging all of a sudden. And my uh, acquaintances, who weren't actually friends, they were all older than me. They're like, Adam, go out there and check out what that was. <laughs> so I opened the door to my hotel room, and I'm like, because it was just a naked lady. <laughs> and like 12, 13-year-old me was like, I've never seen those before, but I really like those. There's boobs on here. And all of the, like, I remember, I'll never forget the look on this girl's face. She must have been like 20, 21. And she turned and looked at me and winked. And I was like, "Ah!" (laughs) Yes. Because I knew 
that like that was the most action church me was ever going to get. <laughs> you know, for like all of high school. And I wasn't even in high school. I was probably, honestly, I was probably like 11 years old, to be honest with you. I was probably in sixth grade. And I turned and I was like, guys, guys, get out. There's a naked lady out here. And like, by the time they all shuffled out, she had gone back inside. So they're all like, fuck you, man. There's no naked lady out here, you bullshitter. Like, they never believed me. And like, you guys believe me, don't you? (laughs) Katrina, you're next. So please put your hands together for Katrina. Keep it going until she gets up here. Hey, uh, I don't know how to follow that boob story. (laughs) That was magic. Um, Hi, my name's Katrina. And I have a story about the one time I moved to Germany to get laid by someone that I had a crush on. I used to be a dishwasher. I washed dishes in this little restaurant in North Carolina, and it was disgusting, and there was water and filth. And the redeeming thing of this job was that the cooks would pick out the music we listened to on rotation, and they were cooler than me, and they were older than me, so we had great music, and it was just like a wonderful thing. And I had this one band that I really liked, and they would play it all the time. So that was my favorite band. I moved to Madison about six years ago, and I want to say two years ago, this band came to Madison. They played at the high noon. I was like, oh my God, this is the best. This is so good. And so I saw them, and then I took home the bass player. (laughs) Woo! I slept with them. I fucked them. (laughs) Thanks. (laughs) It was great. And, um... (laughs) So so that happened, and uh, we exchanged emails at the end of our rendezvous in the morning, and um, I didn't think I'd ever see him again, which is why this was such a rewarding experience. And then he emailed me, and he was like, hey, we should be Skype buddies. We should Skype. He was in the States for the rest of the month touring. I'm like, all right. So we're Skyping. I get to go backstage like via Skype and all of his gigs. It's really super cool. And then I decided, you know, I'm going to move to Germany. And he was like, yeah, why don't you move to Germany? So (laughs) I do that. I uh, said goodbye to my roommate. I rehomed my cat. And I packed a few suitcases. And off I went. And I show up at Berlin Airport, this tiny little airport in Berlin. There's two of them. I showed up at the stupid one. And... (laughs) And there was no internet, and there were no people, and it was after midnight, and I hadn't slept in a very long time. And I'm like, uh, where's this guy? Where's, where am I? I don't speak German. What am I even doing? And so, so, so I got out my iPad, and I found a Wi-Fi zone, and I had to like buy like a month of Wi-Fi. It's called Boingo. I don't know if you guys know about it. You do. It's, Boingo is the worst. But I had I had no other choice, so I signed up and I'm like checking my Skype. I'm like, Yenis, like where are you? I'm in Germany. And so he had sent me this message. <laughs> he sent me this message and it was like, uh, hey, so I had this dentist appointment and you know, like this being a socialist country, it just takes a while to get in. So I'm still I'm in Castle, which is a few hours uh I believe east of where you are. Um take this bus to this train, then walk down the street, knock on apartment number three, and my keyboardist will let you in. He might be a little bummed. He lives with his girlfriend, and her grandma is dying. (laughs) They have to fly out to England the next morning, so just be cool. Just be cool. I'm cool. It's all good. So so I do this, right? What else am I going to do? I'm like on this bus and I find the train and I get there. And now I'm in this neighborhood and it's a very Turkish neighborhood, which means that there's not a whole lot of English speakers or German speakers. It's mostly broken German and Turkish and I speak neither. So, but I have this address written down and I don't know if anyone here speaks German, but my mom does. Hi, mom. You do. So the streets are called Strazas, and it's a double S, and it looks like a fucking B. And so I, like, bring it into this Turkish place. I'm like, I have to go do something Straba, and, like, no one knows. I find the place. I get in. The keyboardist is tanked. He's just so drunk. His girlfriend is so drunk. I am so tired. 
anyway, I made it there safely, and that was great. Uh, and then Yenis, my German love, shows up about two days later. <laughs> And I realize how uncomfortable I am in this country. Like, I don't speak German. I don't know anyone. I, like, was working at the Willie Street Co-op, so my funds were, like, at an all-time low. (laughs) And I'm like, I really hope this guy loves me. (laughs) No. (laughs) No. So, uh, so, um, I just... I decide to go on tour with him. He's kind of a famous rock star. And so we toured seven countries that summer. This is the summer of 2014. This is relatively recently. Yes, I made it back. And so we toured 12 countries. I ended up crowd surfing in multiple countries. I did all these cool things. We His band has 12 members in it including the sound guy, and they're all German, and they're all older men. Like, they're all, like, 30 to 40 and up. And uh, so we're traveling around the States, because they were doing a States tour, and my visa was expiring anyway. It was great timing for me. And so we managed to hit up by accident. Their tours coincided with every gay parade in the States, which was, like, (laughs) awesome, which was so good. So we're driving through San Francisco. Literally, I shit you not, we're driving through, like, the Castro, and there's all of these men parading in front of us wearing nothing but cock plugs, right? They've got cock plugs and tutus, and here I am, like, looking pretty queer, and I'm in this van with all these German men having to explain to them American gay culture. And I think I left them with a good impression. Um, Yeah, and so then, so the tour ended. I went to a ton of cities. I got to see America in a whole new light. All the German commentary. Um, I went back to Germany with them eventually. We had briefly talked about, you know, family planning. Let's start a life together. You know, this is so magical. And about a week later, I moved back to Madison. So here I am, and I made it. All right, real quick, up next, we have got Claire Rossmiller. Claire, put your hands together for Claire. All right, so I was actually less terrified during my dangerous story than I am right now. So when I was nine, I lived in New Jersey which gives you an idea of how dangerous this actually was. Uh, To give some context, I lived in Franklin Lakes, New Jersey. That is where the Real Housewives of New Jersey takes place. It it comes into play later, I promise. But, um, so, I lived in a wealthy neighborhood. And because you live in a wealthy neighborhood, houses are very far apart from each other. And so instead of stopping off at my bus stop and walking the eighth of a mile it is it was up my driveway, I would usually stop over at a friend's house, play over there for a while, and then my mom would come and pick me up. So, one day, I stop over, my friend takes out an aluminum softball bat and says... Hey, Claire, do you want to learn how to hit a softball? That is the direction the story is taking. So, um, my mom uh, arrives. My friend tees it up. Uh, I'm standing kind of close to her. And she takes it. She swings. And I realize on the follow-through... I may be standing a bit too close. So I get clonked right in the head. I'm like, huh, what just happened? And everyone is screaming because there is blood just coming down. And I'm like, oh, my glasses are kind of dirty. Oh, my God. But I'm, I'm totally fine. My mom is there with our dog. We're a, a half a mile away from our house. And she starts freaking out. She's like, what do I do? And I'm like, what's going on, guys? So I go inside. They lay me down on the ground to try and get the bleeding to slow down a little bit. Because it's weird trying to get your head below your heart. And I didn't really want to do that. And so my mom calls 911, and she's like, what kind of towel do I use on her? Do I use a dry one? Do I use a wet one? And I'm laying down there like, hey, mom, you know, it's fine. We'll get through this. It's fine. I'm good. (laughs) And 
So, I'm waiting. I've got a towel on my head. I'm bleeding profusely. And I hear sirens. I'm like, ooh, sirens? What does that mean? Turns out the police had come because in the 911 inter- exchange that my mom had, they didn't hear that it was a nine-year-old girl. They thought it was a 90-year-old woman that had gotten hit in the head with a baseball bat. So they thought it was a robbery. They were very surprised to find me going, Hey, how you doing? They wrapped me up. An ambulance came pretty soon after. They're like, you're going to be okay, kid. I'm like, you bet I am. I get loaded into the ambulance, and, you know, we're going really fast. I'm like, wow, Mom, this is the fastest I've ever made it to the hospital. And she goes, I hope you never have to do this again. I'm like, well, it's pretty cool. So I get inside. I'm put in a wheelchair. I try and get up, and I'm like, well, okay, maybe not. And I'm only in the waiting room for two hours, which is surprising. Um, But also not because I realize that I am bleeding very heavily from my forehead. But um, here's where the Real Housewives of New Jersey comes back into play. They found a plastic surgeon! Yep, I needed 25 stitches in my forehead, and instead of getting a regular surgeon, they found a plastic surgeon that I guess was off golfing, and they pulled him in real quick. Um, so I sat there, and the most painful part of this whole experience was they were injecting uh, numbing medicine into my forehead. Uh, and they started just stitching me back up, and I'm kind of like, ah, eh, this hurts. Maybe I'll get a few days out of school. And um, I go home, I'm fine, my friend apologized profusely, and the next day we celebrate my brother's birthday. Um, And that is my most dangerous thing that's ever happened to me. Thank you. That was dangerous. So this is my first time here. This was this was kind of a last minute thing I decided to do that if I would have known, I would have put my face on for you guys. So just deal with it. At least I'm wearing a brassiere. I was I was thinking about just like it's just Ken. I'm just gonna hang out with Ken. Um, but anyway, I'm gonna tell a story. This is kind of the story that I usually pull out of my back pocket, like if I'm on a date and it's really awkward and there's nothing else to talk about. And it does involve danger. It's not a date story, though. I was 15, and when I was a kid, we spent our summers up in Eagle River, Wisconsin. I don't know if anyone's familiar, um, but there's a chain of 28 lakes, and they're all connected. And when you're 12, you're allowed to get a boating license and drive a boat. Theoretically, you're legally allowed to drive a cigarette boat across Lake Michigan, which is ridiculous, but my dad bought me a little runabout with a 65-horse motor. So it was this little speedboat. It had four seats, and this was awesome. Just to be able to go anywhere you wanted, you know, go to friends' houses and go downtown. Um, So I used to work at a pizza place when I was 15, and I would drive my boat to work. And one night, it was really dark, and it was pitch black, and I was driving my boat home from work at about 10.30 at night, and if you know one thing about 15-year-olds, they're really stupid. And I was thinking, you know, no one's out here, there's no cops, I'm just going to buzz through the channels. You know, there's the slow no wake channels, you're supposed to, I'm just going to, I want to go home, you know. So, I'm going really fast. And there's a pontoon boat, and they're going really slow. So I didn't see any wake, I didn't see any disturbance, and I did not see this pontoon boat And until the last minute. And I swerved my boat, and I clipped it. I hit it. And it could have been worse, but it was bad. My boat started sinking, and I was about three lakes away from our house. Um, I was... 
very frightened. And it was a boat filled with English people. And they were like, oh, are you bloody drunk? What's the matter with you? And I'm like, oh, I'm 15. <laughs> and I still had my apron on from, from work when I was making pizzas. And I had, like, pizza sauce everywhere. And my, my boat's sinking. I'm taking in water. And I was freaking out. Um, so I flipped the bilge pump on. And it's, it's going. It's, it's bilging. And... I made it home, and I went up stairs, and I was like this, and I went up to my dad, and I'm like, oh, I hit a boat full of English people, and he was like, what the hell are you talking about? Calm down, slow down, the boat's sinking, stop there, the English people, um, anyway, he went down, said, don't worry, we have insurance, and insurance paid for their boat to get fixed and then my boat got fixed so my punishment kind of was I was without my boat for three weeks which I totally deserved <laughs> end of story thanks Laura our next storyteller a few months ago maybe many months ago told a story about a cadaver and his experience with that so please put your hands together for Mark Lydon I promise you I am an axe murderer. So this story will involve Miles Davis, an antelope, a seatbelt, and a gun. But spoiler alert, I lived. 1999, and I was busy meeting my wife uh, in the Peace Corps in Tanzania, fabulously wonderful and safe country, since this is the theme of the night, dangerous. It's a safe country filled with people doing dangerous things. And um, about three quarters of the way through the service, I'm hitchhiking and thinking, you know, my buddies have been talking about how cool it is to go hunting. And, well... I'm a guy, which means I should be doing what the other guys are doing, which means I should be going hunting also while I'm hitchhiking. What can go wrong? And it was a routine trip home from Capital City out to site, and I'm thinking, all right, let's, let's, let's hitchhike. So I bus out to the spot and sit and get a ride. And sometimes the rides are awful. You're standing on like a pile of sardines, and sometimes you're in an air-conditioned SUV. This time it was an air-conditioned SUV. And uh, just me, solo. Uh, vehicle slows down. Driver rolls down the window. He's like, yeah, sure, jump in. You'll be great. He's got his dad in. He's a middle-aged dude. He's got... A partner, spouse, girlfriend, everyone reshuffles, and they put me in the front passenger seat. I'm like, okay, great. So a lot of language, chatting them up. Hey, what's going on? Yeah, blah, blah, blah. So do you ever hunt, I ask the guy. He's like, oh, sure. Reaches underneath the front driver's seat and pulls out a small handgun. And I'm like... Great. Yeah. No, I've never hunted. What do you do? How do you do this? And he's like, oh, like this. And so he slows down in the next village that we're coming through and just kind of pulls off the road into this salt flat. And so I'm living in this amazing part of Tanzania, which is kind of like tucked between all these different national parks. And there's an area where these antelope will go... Uh, sort of migrate through. And it's empty and flat, and there's a little bit of water and a little bit of salt and a lot of nothing. So while he's driving to that spot, he asks if I have any music with me. And I'm like, well, yeah, I just picked up this awesome cassette of Miles Davis. I was like, this would be a great soundtrack right now. So he puts it in. And... Uh, then he lays on the gas and starts gunning for this herd of gazelles or antelope off in the distance. And I'm like, okay, seatbelt, click. 
and he's getting up some speed, rolls down his window, and his approach is to hunt them in two different ways. Yeah, with the gun, and B, with the grill of his vehicle. And so he's just hitting it, just misses. But as he misses, then he's also shooting the gun at the antelope. And I'm like, oh, man, because this guy is also just cranking the wheel. Because the antelope are smart. These things are very evasive. And so they're, like, zooming around while he's zooming around. And it looks just like Hollywood. Like, I had never been in a vehicle that does those kind of cookies before with, uh, you know, am I going to roll over? There's cloud dust and all that stuff. His dad is just whatever. His girlfriend is like, whatever. I'm just like, I'm dying. Like I'm going to die. This is, this is why they say don't hitchhike. (laughs) So whatever, six shots, nothing. The last attempt was this young gazelle antelope that had evaded all the previous attempts. And I I remember seeing its tongue hanging out due to its exhaustion and sweat and it lived. I lived. No gazelle or antelope died that day. I didn't die that day. He's like, well, you know, whatever. I'm the Sheeta. We didn't kill a, didn't kill a gazelle. I'm like, all right, cool. He just kind of goes back on the road, and we just cruise home. He drops me off at this like local bus stand, and I'm like, all right, thanks. And that was hunting in Tanzania. Thanks, Mark. Okay, real quick before I introduce our next storyteller and last storyteller, who here has Facebook? Beautiful. We are on Facebook. If you search Madison Story Slam and like our page, it helps us out, makes us look cool to other people, whatever. Please put your hands together for our last storyteller. His name is Jerome. Hi. Well, this story isn't exactly about me, and I guess it's supposed to be something that you danger yourself. It's about my grandfather and his brother, and I guess if my grandfather had died, I wouldn't be here. So I guess it does count as danger to me. Um, to start the story, I have to start with uh, my grandfather's parents. They were both telegraph operators in Michigan, and they were working in different stations working the telegraph, you know, and apparently they started flirting over the line, and uh, eventually they actually got to the same town and met each other and decided to get married. Um, Shortly thereafter, uh, they had my grandfather's older brother, Frank, Um, and very shortly after Frank was born, he contacted... um, tuberculosis, which a ridiculously large number of people used to get back then. And at the time, nobody really knew what you were supposed to do if you had tuberculosis. They figured it had something to do with the air. So the two options were either to go up into the mountains where it was cold and the air was light, or you'd go to the sea where the air was heavy and warm, uh, which seems kind of contradictory that they would think these two opposite methods would both work. Anyway, they took the the second option, which was they went to uh, Fort Lauderdale, Florida, which was basically a swamp at the time. Uh, Florida didn't have much of anything. And it was there that my grandfather was born. Um, His birth certificate, for some reason, he checked off the wrong box, and it says he's a woman, but I'm pretty sure he wasn't. Um, Anyway, my grandfather got better, and they grew up there. And uh, pretty much the most important thing at the time in the town was a naval station. And when my grandfather's brother, Frank, was like 10 years old, pretty much everybody contacted some influenza or some yet another disease. This is going to show up in this story. And um, they didn't have anybody could operate the the wireless radio. So they had uh, Frank, who's like 10 years old, go to the naval station, and yet the, the radio equipment these days was something out of a Frankenstein movie. Um, in the, the radios, basically, there was only one station on the dial. You'd be WTTP everywhere on AM. So you just sort of switch, hit the switch, going click, 
click, click, and it would be like all over the FM AM dial. <laughs> so my, my grandfather, who I didn't get around to mentioning his name, his first name was Freeland. Uh, my last name is Van Epps, and uh, Freeland was the name of the in-laws, and there was a deal that uh, my great-grandmother was going to name her kid give him the last name of the uh, the first name of the other family. So he became Freeland Van Epps. Apparently the other family chickened out, so there was no Van Epps Freeland out there. <laughs> my, my grandfather looked up to his brother, literally. My grandfather was never more than five foot two, and Frank was six foot tall. Um, the interesting thing is, my grandmother, she also had a, a sister who was like eight inches taller than her. <laughs> Uh, when they married later. But moving the story ahead, it was World War II came along, and, and Frank volunteered. And uh, my father was, you know, he looked up to his brother a lot. So he decided, it's pretty much as soon as he turned 18, he volunteered. And he got into boot camp, and apparently they lined everybody up in a row by height. And they picked the person in the front, okay, you're the captain of the squad. So my grandfather ended up being the sergeant or captain or whatever, just based on the fact that he was the shortest person there. <laughs> anyway, they went through boot camp, and they did the test and see, well, what abilities do you have? And they said, well, um, I know how to do tele- Morse code, and I worked with radios. Now, radios were really new. And so, great, okay, we'll put you in radio school. Wireless telegraphic radio. It isn't, okay, great. This is a safe ticket to get yourself through the war. But apparently not. Uh, because one of the things they would do with wireless telegraph operators was they'd put them up in a little balloon over the lines for observation. And they would go up there and they'd use a little wireless telegraph operator and send back messages about what was happening. And the thing is, as soon as you went up, everybody for three miles would start shooting at you. <laughs> At the time when uh, airplane pilots had a life expectancy of six weeks, the people up in the balloon had a life expectancy of one week. (laughs) Anyway, this story has a happy ending because November 11, 1918 happened and the war ended (laughs) before my grandfather got out of boot camp. And my brother Frank, he actually got to Europe. His brother Frank got to Europe like three days after the war ended. And he was sent into Germany to occupy um, in the Ruhr Valley. And sort of through some sort of bureaucratic oversight, they left him behind. And he was alone in a castle with all the servants still there, taking care of him for like three months before they realized, hey, what happened to Frank Van Epps? (laughs) So this story has a good ending. Uh, My grandfather didn't die, so I'm here. And I think that's a good way to end the evening. Thank you. Hey, that was Madison's Story Slam Dangerous. That was from our December event at the Wilmar Center. Speaking of the Wilmar Center, we will be back there on Saturday, January 16th uh, for our next Story Slam. The theme that night will be Humiliation. We are again sponsored by Ale Asylum. Get there uh, sometime after 6, before 7, to sign up for a story. Usually people try to get there between 6 and 7 to make sure that they can get a seat. Otherwise, we fill up pretty quick and it becomes standing room only. Hey, just want to say thanks for listening. Thank you for supporting us. Check us out on Facebook. Just search Madison Story Slam. Go to www.madisonstoryslam.com to see how you can further support us. Anyway, we'll catch you next time. Thanks. Thanks.